If you believe that all markets have approximately the same sharp, then the best thing you can do is trade every single market you can. However, if you believe that certain kinds of markets have higher sharps than other kinds of markets, then actually it's optimal from a, from a portfolio optimization perspective to abandon markets that have, a adequately low, that have an inadequately low sharp, even if they're diversifying, because you're taking risk away from things that have a higher sharp. And it's really about that skill versus breadth trade-off um, and our belief in our ability to steer the portfolio towards the skill end and away from the breadth end where necessary that, uh, that gives rise to the portfolio we actually trade. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to another episode in the Open Interest series on Top Traders Unplugged, hosted by Moritz Siebert. In life, as well as in trading, maintaining a spirit of curiosity and open-mindedness is key, and this is precisely what the Open Interest series is all about. Join Moritz as he engages in candid conversations with seasoned professionals from around the globe to uncover their insights, successes, and failures, offering you a unique perspective on the investment landscape. So with no further ado, please enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Open Interest on Top Traders Unplugged. I'm Moritz Siebert, and today I'll be speaking with Scott Curson, who runs the quantitative trading arm of Gresham Investment Management. Gresham Investment Management is a commodities-focused asset management house managing more than $7.5 billion for institutional clients, and one part of the offering is the so-called ACAR, ACAR, or Alternative Commodity Absolute Return Strategy. This is one of the strategies Scott is responsible for, and with the launch date of March 2017, it is among the ones with the longest track record in the alternative markets space. So today, Scott and I will speak about why Gresham believes alternative markets to be superior to traditional markets when it comes to trend-following trading strategies, We'll also speak about their approach to research in this space and how they see this segment of the CTA industry developing going forward. So without any further delay, Scott, fantastic to see you. Welcome to Open Interest. Great to have you here. Hey, thanks, Mark. It's good to see you too. Great. Scott, before we start, as is custom, could you kindly give us a little bit of background on yourself? What brought you into the trading space and the systematic trend following arena in particular? Uh, thanks, Moritz. It's, it's really great to be here and uh, honored to be a part of the program. Um, and hopefully, um, hopefully I can um, impart something uh, at least vaguely useful. Um, so my, my introduction and, uh, to quant trading and, and ultimately to the genesis of the ACAR strategy is, uh, is somewhat circuitous. And, um, 
and, and, and took a while to, to get there. Um, I actually didn't start, uh, my, my professional trading career as a trader. Um, I started as an academic economist, um, that morphed into commodities research and that morphed into fundamentally based discretionary trading. Eventually, um, that led to my first experience, um, running a quant model, which was, uh, at the time Barclays Global Investors and, um, now part of BlackRock and, uh, in, in the early 2000s. That was an interesting experience because, um, at the time, I don't think I was ready to be a quant trader and I struggled to reconcile, um, my view of the market with the model's view of the market. And, um, and one thing I learned from, uh, from my mentor at the time was that there are a lot of different successful ways to manage money, but you have to figure out which one you're going to do and you sort of got to stick with it and stay in your lane. And I kind of wasn't there. Um, that led me back to prop trading through, um, through the financial crisis of 07, 09. Um, and the kind of crystallizing moment for me around the application of quant to, um, to commodities trading was really the exit of the GFC. And part of that was related to um, bank and other prop capital, which was shrinking heavily. Um, but part of it was related to, uh, and quite importantly, to the notion, uh, my belief at the time, that, um, that discretionary trading was going to become increasingly um, at least my, my frequency and, and my approach was going to be increasingly cannibalized, um, by algorithms. Um, and I had a number, a number of reasons for that related to sort of market evolution, technology, um, presence of HFTs, kind of all the stuff that was going on. If you, if you kind of put yourself way back in time to, uh, to early 09. And my conclusion at the time was, um, what I really had to do was strip out all the emotional, uh, aspects of trading and go back to a straight systematic approach and, you know, going back to, um, to my BGI mentors phrase, um, you know, to get in one lane and stick with it. And that was really, really where I started, um, to dig into quant trading, uh, at a much more fundamental level that, um, I ended up at, um, at, uh, uh, GLG, part of the man group as a uh, head of commodities. And, um, at the time man group had split it was split between the discretionary GLG business and the systematic AHL business, which we kind of quickly realized, well, if we're doing systematic commodities trading within GLG, we should really morph that into AHL, which is the systematic arm. And I took over the commodities books for AHL. This is sort of about 10 years ago, 2012. And really the, the, the crystallizing or, or sort of the, I guess the root of kind of where I'm at now really, really owes, owes a great debt to the AHL team that I joined who had the, um, the insight not, not long prior to my, uh, to my arrival to launch, um, what is now known as the AHL evolution fund. Um, and the underlying hypothesis, uh, or investment thesis, if you will, of, of AHL evolution, as, as I see it, I don't want to, don't want to speak to, for my former co colleagues and firm, um, was that the same classical trend following techniques that AHL had, um, had made its bread and butter over decades, really, and helped invent really in the modern sense was a fundamentally sharper signal in a certain class of markets than others. And this, I think it's, it's worth emphasizing how, you know, now we're not the only ones doing this, but 10 years ago, that was actually a fairly radical insight because if you, if you rewind to that period of time, the prevailing wisdom, and this is, I would say virtually pervasive across the space was within medium term kind of uh, trend following 
the, the individual market information and individual sharp or information ratio at the market level was so low um, that really was almost impossible to distinguish between markets. And so the, the, the best thing you could possibly do from, um, from a portfolio optimization standpoint is max diversification. And if you have relatively little information about any individual market, max diversification leads you to essentially as many markets as you can possibly trade. Yeah, so so AHL Evolution, um, when did AHL Evolution start? Do you remember? Was that 2012 or even earlier? I, I believe it was earlier. Um, sort of an interesting, I, again, I'll qualify this by saying I wasn't at AHL at the time, um, but but my understanding is um, is that Evolution actually didn't start, although it's technically started as a fund, it didn't start as a fund um, for sort of the outside world. It actually started as a way to access markets that couldn't be otherwise accessed by AHL Diversified, the flagship trend follower, um, and in particular, um, over-the-counter swaps markets. So in, it's sort of an interesting historical artifact that it really began, the, the, alt, the alt, mar, alt market space owes its historical roots to the idea of adding, to, to, which, to an idea which is actually consistent with this overall max diversification approach. And it was just that classical trend followers like AHL Diversified couldn't trade OTC. And there was additional diversification. These are additional markets. And what happened over the subsequent years was, in a certain sense, um, we ran a real-time experiment, um, which was that we had the same researchers, the same code base, the same portfolio construction um, applied to two different kinds of markets, these sort of more operationally intensive um, less standardized, um, less traditional markets, like swaps markets in particular. Um, and we got to watch the same set of tools um, applied to those markets and applied to the traditional markets. And what we learned was that actually the the, the ultimate, the, the, the portfolio level sharp, if you viewed evolution as a sub-portfolio, the, the ultimate performance of, of trend signals in those markets appeared really to be structurally different. If if you remember the period sort of 09 to I'm going to say roughly 12 or 13, it might be a little off by the date, classical trend following had um, had a pretty tough time. And yet during that exact same period of time, um, the, um, the alternative markets version of this, um, as embodied by Evo, um, did very, very well. And so when I arrived in 2012, um, I was given the following proposition. Um, the... The traditional commodities markets, things like front month WTI, gold futures, et cetera, had had a really pretty wickedly painful run um, at the exact same time. And again, I, it's worth emphasizing with the same signals, same approach, same everything, really, same people um, doing the research, um, same execution desk doing the trading. Those same signals applied to the commodities sub-portfolio of Evo, which at the time was very small and very narrow. It consisted largely of, um, of uh, German and Nordic, Nordic electricity. Um, those particular markets performed radically differently um, than the traditional commodities markets. So same sort of lesson that they had learned in fixed income and increasingly in cash equities and EMFX and, and other spaces seemed to be true of commodities, but it was a very narrow experiment. And commodities were, I think it's fair to say, something of a backwater. Um, so my, uh, as, as coming in as a quant and as a commodities economist, my sort of marching orders were, um, were to take that insight and see how far we could push the envelope into non-traditional commodities. 
And so that team, my team, um, spent 2013 to 16, essentially building out the commodity sub portfolio from something like three or four markets to something like 40 markets or, you know, I'm sort of in rough numbers. Um, and what we, what we continued to learn, uh, was the, the further we dug into the alternative commodity space, the more diversification we got within the alternative commodity space and the more we outperformed the traditional commodity space. And what I, what I think is really interesting about that, and I, I know we're going to talk a little bit more about research philosophy later, but um, what, I've, what I found particularly interesting is that my view, at least, was that that had less to do with a particular selection of markets and more to do with an approach to selecting markets and a type of market. So it wasn't, the, it wasn't this market or that market. It was that our process, which we um, repeated over and over and over again, which is sort of interesting in itself, because in a certain sense, the track record of, of the commodities portfolio was less the track record of a single portfolio every several years and more a track record of a sequence of portfolios that were actually quite different year on year but we're consistent with an underlying approach and an underlying concept of what, uh, of what an alternative market might be. Let, let, let's get into this in a bit. Actually, conveniently, you just answered a question that I wanted to ask, which is like, when did you first get in touch with these alternative markets? Because you wrote this paper in 2019 called Trend is Not Dead. It has just moved to a trendier neighborhood, which people can find on the Gresham website. So I wanted to ask, and because you've launched in 2017 at Gresham, I wanted to ask, when did you first become interested in these alternative markets and what intrigued you? But you just answered that it was around the 2012 period with, with AHL and kind of like, you know, um, taking evolution to the next step, so to say, with, with wool markets. Speaking about these markets, because, you know, we'll be speaking, well, pretty much exclusively about alternative commodity markets today. What is an alternative market to you? I mean, what exactly, if there is an exact, I guess maybe the, the boundaries are blurry, what differentiates an alternative market from, let's just say, a traditional market? What, what, what is that? Because, you know, for some people, something that might be alternative to you may not be alternative to me and vice versa. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Moritz. Um, um, I'm going to give you a partially woolly answer to that, um, and that's because I don't think there's a single definition. Um, this was a much easier, a much easier line to draw in 2013, because at that time, we were at AHL uh, was um, the first CTA to trade every single one of these markets. When we would go to a freight broker, to an iron ore broker. Uh, to an electricity broker, and we would say, hey, we're interested in doing the following. They looked at us like we had two heads. And that actually got us really excited because that was the clear signal that nobody else was doing this. And so you could have said at the time there was a pretty simple definition, uh, working definition, which or sufficient condition, you could almost say, which was that if it was not in a traditional CTA portfolio, it was definitionally alternative. I think that has morphed over time and we can talk, I know we're going to talk later about kind of the future of the space and, and how the space has evolved since then. But I think at that time, that was a pretty neat and clean definition. If, if it was in the big book, it wasn't in the little book. That leads to what, what to me was um, both an unsatisfactory answer um, as well as to um, ultimately why I decided to spin out and, and launch the ACAR strategy. And, and that question is, well, wait a minute, why is that? And the why is that is, um, is I think, an inherently non-quant kind of a question to ask. Uh, what we tend to do is just kind of run by the numbers. 
But again, you know, as, as I mentioned, I started as an academic, not as a, not as a quant, and I spent a lot of time on the prop side. And it was never intellectually satisfactory to me to just sort of accept this kind of received wisdom that, well, they're, they're not like this, they're like that, and they seem to work better. Um, it always made me want to ask, well, but, but what is it? What is it since, since it, since it goes directly against the grain of, uh, of decades of conventional wisdom around max diversification, why is it that we have chosen consciously to restrict our diversification and trade this other class of markets? And, um, Ultimately, that you, you mentioned that paper, and uh, I, I should give a shout out to my chief scientist, um, Dr. Tom Babbage, who's really the architect um, behind uh, behind a lot of that paper. Um, and the insight there, and the core of kind of what we do in um, in the ACAR strategy, has is rooted most fundamentally in I think two observations. Um, and they're really not actually specific to commodities. Commodities just happen to fit this definition rather than the other way around. And, and those two observations are, firstly, the efficacy of the classical trend signal has everything to do with the underlying distribution of returns of the, of the markets you trade. Uh, and more specifically, it has to do with the preponderance of relatively large moves over the right kind of frequency. So just as a stylized example, suppose you have a three-month, whatever you want to call it, half-life, duration, average hold, trend signal, then what you kind of need for your trend system to work is you need the markets you trade to generate trends over a three-month uh, three horizon. And I'm just, again, this is just, just sort of stylized. But um, what we see time and again is, and it doesn't really matter whether there's upward drift, whether there's downward drift, it's not really about serial correlation returns. There's a lot of these kind of metrics that I think quants kind of point to they're actually not at the root of it. Really, the root of it is how fat the tails are and and the duration of those tail events. Um, that's kind of was sort of observation one. And I think observation two was that actually this max diversification, um, this max max diversification argument is is completely valid. But, um, but was erroneously applied. So when people would say, and we would question this ourselves, why do we restrict potential diversification? That actually belies the point that you can achieve at least as much diversification. Uh, and there's some, 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 you know, there's always a caveat. That, and the key caveat here, I think, is capacity constraints. But if you're willing to restrict your capacity such that you can risk budget enough um, uh, that you can allocate your risk budget sufficiently to enough small markets and enough small interesting markets that share these kind of distributional qualities, you can actually not only generate more diversification than you would in a traditional market CTA, but, and th this is really crucial, um, more consistent diversification. And sort of one of the bugaboos I have, you know, like I think all quants, but I particularly have um, my list of kind of, of bugaboos uh, uh, of what we do as, a, as an industry and one of them um, that my team hears kind of day in, day out is, um, is the importance of looking at conditional distributions rather than unconditional distributions. So, you know, the unconditional distribution of, um, of diversification is essentially what's like the long run average pairwise correlation of your assets, something like that. But that actually isn't really what matters in the real world. What matters in the real world much more frequently than the long run is what the conditional distribution is. And what we find in traditional markets is they tend to cluster. So when things go wrong, they kind of all go wrong together. 
Um, and what that means is if you just plot something as simple as the rolling pairwise correlation of, of you know, a bunch of multi-asset, uh, of a multi-asset portfolio, including FX, equities, bonds, commodities, in, in the traditional asset sense, what you'll find is um, that those, uh, those correlations tend to spike. What you'll find if you do the same exercise um, with the alternative commodity space in particular, and it's true of alternative markets generally, but specifically true of commodities, is not only is the average pairwise correlation lower, but the, but the variability of that correlation is lower and more stable. Let me just ask you, Scott, you said on our prep call that you are really the only uh, exclusive commodity or alternative commodity market CTA, whereas the other alternative market CTAs, and we can name some of their names, you know, Florencourt, you've mentioned AHL, there's, you know, a bunch of other Systematica, I think. They, I guess, would differ from what it is that you're doing in the sense that they would also trade, say, some of the exotic FX markets or maybe an onshore Chinese government bond futures market, things like that. So you have this exclusive focus on the commodities. Is this because of Gresham, because Gresham is a commodities house, or because you figured out through research that the commodity, the, the alternative commodity market is that that is actually where the action is and where you can best apply your strategies. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's very much the latter. Um, and I think it's, it, it's really rooted in um, what we talk about as the conviction versus concentration trade-off. And I mentioned earlier that, um, uh, th that I was always looking for a more intellectually satisfactory answer as to why these markets. And this is not at all a statement that all those other alternative markets aren't interesting because they are. And, um, and those competitors that you mentioned, I have the utmost respect for, and they've done a terrific job and the results speak for themselves. And they've, they've made their clients quite a lot of money in those markets. The, the, the choice to focus on commodities was really, um, was really rooted in, uh, in my belief that I understood why commodities had the right sort of properties for trend following. And, um, and I was willing to trade off, uh, I was willing to trade off concentration for conviction. That was kind of the, the most core thing. And then the, the, the sort of the second key observation, you know, we talked a bit about, um, a bit about correlation and diversification, of course, was the observation that commodities actually aren't one asset class. You know, if I trade um, coal onshore in China and I trade electricity in the West Coast of the U.S. Um, and I trade liquefied natural gas delivered to Asia or, or the EU, those are just structurally different things. They're different points in time. They're you know, at a molecular level. They're different things. And that lends itself to what we call structural diversification. And it was that really that combination. Let's maybe speak a little bit about the number of the markets. And, and let me preface this with. So you have this exclusive commodities focus. You're trading, for instance, TTF and I guess UK gas, but you're not trading Henry Hub because Henry Hub is kind of like, you know, the, the commodity, the natural gas market, which other CTAs would be trading as well. You'd be trading the onshore China commodities, but you're also trading, um, I think you mentioned commodity equities, which is, which is, which I think was, was kind of like standing out. Why did you, is there anything alternative about these stocks or why did you add them to the portfolio? Yeah, that's a good question, Moritz. It was not the commodities equities sleeve was not present at launch. At present at launch, it was actually a relatively recent addition. Um, it's a quite a small portion of the overall risk budget, and I think it's fair to say it's not within sort of the core thesis that I outlined before. So the reason that we uh, that we entered that space was actually not because we wanted to trade equities. It was because we wanted to trade commodities that were accessible in no other way. And so, for instance. Um, 
uh, construction aggregates, cement, concrete, things like that, um, uranium. Um, there's a whole host of commodity markets that fit our definition of an alternative market, but simply have no futures market. Right, right. No, I get that. Coming back to the number of markets that actually exist, I think you said to me on the prep call is something like 140 markets that you trade. I presume this includes the equities. I was just, and, and I'm asking you because I'm not active in the alternative markets at that point, but when we look at, you know, or when we think about Florencourt, for instance, and Doug has been on on our podcast and other podcasts, he speaks about, you know, they're trading 500, 600 or so markets and they're finding 40 or 50 new markets every year. That kind of like got me puzzled. Like, you know, where are all these gems hidden? And, you know, what what is it? Like, you know, how how why, why are you at 70 and he's at 500? I mean, how large is this? space really and where can you find these markets uh yeah so just to just to clarify the the the, the number of markets um it we trade about 140 pure commodity markets accessed by futures or forwards linked directly to the price of the commodity um the equities sleeve has about another 70 odd um items in it which are more uh, which are really these sector based um these sector based things but um, I think the core of what we're doing really is that 140, and those are pure commodity markets, just, just to be clear about that. The, I mean, the evolution of that number, right? If you went back to 2013, that number was like three by tw- at, at AHL. By 2016, it was something like 40. Um, when we launched, it was kind of something like 50. Um, and it has grown, you know, roughly linearly from, from there until where we are now. Where are those markets? I, I think there's, so one thing is, some of them have always been there. They've just been either too difficult to access or in uh, or in insufficiently liquid, and those and those properties have kind of grown over time as the markets themselves have developed. The other is really, and this is kind of something that we talk about in terms of the long term future of ACAR, is a new commodity market. Um, we believe will kind of always come about, um, and the reason it will come about is just sort of a fundamental uh, fundamental byproduct of human human progress. You know, we talk about things like. Um, Talk about things like decarbonization. Decarbonization has led to the development of a whole bunch of carbon futures markets that 10 years ago didn't exist. Um, and I'm, I'm quite, you know, I have maximum conviction in the idea that 10 years from now, we'll be trading a bunch of markets that will look back and say, actually, those didn't exist either. So one of the things is kind of like this gnawing point that, you know, as, as I'd like to discuss in a non-confrontational, very friendly way, but you know, we're always going like, I love adding markets to the portfolio because, you know, every incremental market has a little bit of a diversification benefit in the overall context. So you specifically don't do that. You know, you restrict your portfolio to A, only the alternative markets and then B, only the commodity markets within that space. I guess most of the alternative markets probably have a commodity linkage. But from a math perspective, I mean, you would get max diversification by trading all these markets. Um, so let's chat about why you don't do this or what your counter argument to that is, where you say, no, you shouldn't be doing that. You should kind of like be tossing out all these traditional markets, the, the DAX future and the S&P and Henry up, and not trade them in the trend-following context and only do the alternative. That's the, the, the active yep. decision that you made, right? Absolutely. And that, that to me, it, it, I, I, can't that, I can't get that to tie up yet. <laughs> I think the, the, the mathematical tie-out to that is if you believe that all markets have approximately the same sharp, 
then the best thing you can do is trade every single market you can. However, if you believe that certain kinds of markets have higher sharps than other kinds of markets, then actually it's optimal from a, from a portfolio optimization perspective to abandon markets that have, a adequately low, that have an inadequately low sharp, even if they're diversifying, because you're taking risk away from things that have a higher sharp. And it's really about that skill versus breadth trade-off um, and our belief in our ability to steer the portfolio towards the skill end and away from the breadth end where necessary that, uh, that gives rise to the portfolio we actually trade. Okay, so you're not saying that the traditional markets don't work in a trend-following context. You know, the last two or three years have actually been relatively good years or pretty good years for um, trend-following funds. I mean, there are some funds even this year, traditional market trend-following funds in 2023 that have a, a great year, even though the industry average is kind of like, let's say, zero or slightly down. But I think what you're saying is you're not saying that that stuff doesn't work. You know, there is, I guess, a small alpha or edge in the traditional markets trend following space. But what you're saying is, well, we're removing the traditional markets from the portfolio in order to make room, additional risk budget room for these markets, which have better trending properties or better um, sharps, as you've said. Th th that's exactly that's exactly right. We are firm believers that there is a positive alpha um, to to be harvested in traditional markets by classical trend following. Um, very very much a believer of that, and, and and wouldn't wouldn't want to be represented any other way. But I think your point on risk budget is, is exactly exactly right. Another way to put that is, if I give a unit of risk to a given market that has an opportunity cost, and I get a benefit from diversification, and then I get a cost in sharp degradation. Um, and, um, and we believe that there is a balancing point, um, at which it, it is rational and optimal to, um, to, to cut that, to cut that boundary. I think the, the, the other salient point is by restricting, and this is both true of our decision to restrict ourselves to the commodity space, as well as to the alternative commodity space is you end up with a trend following portfolio with all the friendly properties that people love about trend following sort of endogenous risk management positive skew of returns, but we end up with a pure trend portfolio that is a, that has a relatively low correlation to other trend followers. And, and as, as you're surely aware, most trend followers are uh, amongst themselves relatively highly correlated. So, um, so our approach results in portfolio returns, which have an interesting diversification property vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, classical trend following. And, and our belief actually is they fit together quite well. Right. Am I right to assume that when you speak about trend following, you're actually, you know, using kind of like established or known trend following, you know, strategies? I mean, of course you have your, you know, variation of that, but it's a systematic price only. You're not using any fundamental or alternative data that relates to these commodities you're trading. It's kind of like you would be, you know, trading a trend following strategy like many of the other CTAs would, would as well, just on other markets. I think that's exactly right. You know, of course, every every shop and every research team will, at the margin, have small differences in in the way they apply classical trend following. But we are very much in the mold and are and are actually quite dedicated to maintaining um, to maintaining what I would call a neoclassical trend approach. And you know, the underlying code would be pretty familiar. I think most people to uh, who do what we do. Right. Do you do you need to be uh, slightly or maybe even substantially longer term in your whole periods given the markets that you trade because you may not find it as easy to get in and out kind of like screen liquidity you know tight bid offers because you need an OTC broker or something like that 
do you uh, or you trade further down the curve in some of these markets where there's you know less liquidity today and you would only be moving into liquidity as time goes by do you do you kind of like need to follow a very long-term approach with these markets um it's definitely fair to say that we that we trade on average more slowly um, than we would in in more traditional markets and more slowly than um, than traditional CTAs. But I would push back a little bit on the notion that that's a liquidity or, a, as you said, difficulty of getting in or out. Um, it's much more a function of cost. Um, the friction cost, you know, at the simplest level, the bid offer of um, of the stuff we trade tends to be substanti- substantially wider. And in order to combat that, um, you want to reduce turnover and the, the models themselves. We don't do that as a discretionary decision. We let the models choose the, the optimal speeds. Those optimal speeds subject cost curves tend to dictate uh, uh, longer horizons. All right. Well, I guess the, the bit off a spread, you know, kind of like correlates with liquidity, right? I mean, it is wider because these markets are generally a little bit less liquid, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, the, the, I, I think the, um, the, uh, the trigger point, if you will, uh, in your phrasing was the difficulty of getting in or out because we actually reverse engineer from liquidity our size constraints um, such that we can always get in or out of what we need to. Right. And so with uh, with the markets that you have in the portfolio, I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I mean, I presume you want every single market to have an equal chance of contributing to the risk or the PL and the expected profits of the portfolio. So I guess at some point, capacity becomes an issue. I mean, when you look at your portfolio, I think, is it, am I right to say that your fund is closed, that you actually had capacity and you're no uh, longer- It is, it, it's it is close closed. to the current time, that's right. Right, so what is what is the capacity of these markets? Um, so, you know, c- capacity is one of those funny things I mentioned earlier, I've got sort of bugaboos about quant trading. One of them is that, um, is that people talk about capacity as a point estimate, and, and I think that's just not correct. Really what capacity is, is a surface, and it reflects the objective function of the manager and the trade-off between um, management fees and performance fees. Um, You can always run a larger fund at a lower sharp, broadly speaking. Our decision to restrict ourselves to commodities and to alternative commodities dictates that we we respect much tighter capacity constraints. And, you know, I think at, at the core of what we do is a discipline around capacity and a willingness to run a business at a smaller asset base than um, than I think most of our competitors would be comfortable with. Right. So maybe another thing, not about capacity, but the overall size of that space, like when you take Gresham, when you take um, Evolution, when you take Systematica, Florencord, like what is the, in, in your estimate, what is the sum total or the, the total AUM of alternative market CTAs today? Yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 obviously a little hard to know exactly, um, but by our numbers, I think a a good uh, a a good rule of thumb would be to say that the space has grown by an order of magnitude um, between from the time of kind of AHL evolution launch to kind of where we are today. So if, if we call that roughly a decade, I would say you know uh, broadly speaking, the number of the number of funds um, and the asset base has grown by something like a factor of ten. Um, and that probably is, you know, today I'm going to put a finger in the air and say that's kind of something like 20 billion. Right, right. Well, I think that's uh, that's a big number. I I wouldn't have thought it was uh, was that much, but very interesting. Now let's speak about one of the things in our prep call you mentioned is that you've discovered other alphas than trend in these markets, carry, mean reversion, you know, other things that do work. 
but I want to tie this into your research philosophy and how you run your business, because you've told me that deliberately you decided to not focus on them. You have no interest in trading carry or mean reversion in these markets. You specifically focus on trend following, even though I think you said there's, there's money to be, to be made there and these other things. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I, I think we're happy to concede that, um, that there are reasonably well understood, um, non pure trend alphas, um, in CTA space. Um, the reason that we, that we've shied away from those, um, is, um, I, I think one, you mentioned research philosophy and at the core of our research philosophy is it's all about out of sample, not in sample. And we just simply have a much higher conviction in the robustness of the classical trend signal to work on average over time through a variety of environments than we do with some of the other, uh, some of the other versions. That's, that's kind of point one. And I think point two is really, uh, really more related to a practical matter, which is because we're so capacity constrained, we have to think very, very carefully about, um, leverage and turnover. If I start trading things like, for instance, spreads like relative value carry, pretty much inherently those will increase gearing. Um, as I increase gearing, our position size has to get larger for a, to deliver a given amount of risk, and that becomes more costly to the fund. Right. No, of course, when you trade the single market exposure, you have more bang for the buck, right? You don't need to trade as many contracts um, relative to, say, a spread position on, on the calendar. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Um, I, I think probably worth mentioning the one other thing, which is a there's a key feature of the classical trend approach, which is positive skew. Um, there are very few strategies, and this is true in discretionary as well as systematic. There are very few strategies that deliver positively skewed returns. Um, and the more you move into relative value and higher levered strategies, spreads, mean reversion, those tend to have negative skew. And we actually believe that positive skew, um, along with kind of low correlation to other investment styles, is really one of the key features of what we do. Right. What would you say, just, you know, going going back a little bit, what would you say are the key barriers to entry for that business? I mean, you have, I guess, a team at, at Gresham and Gresham has that commodities background, maybe market access, but still the majority of CTAs out there, they don't trade the alternative markets. They focus on the traditional markets because they are easier to access. I mean, what is, why doesn't everyone follow you um, and say like, you know, I'm going to be eating Scott lunch, Scott's lunch now? Um, right. Well, I, I, I suppose I would say that uh, an order of magnitude increase in assets and managers over a decade suggests that, that, that there are definitely some people that are looking to share our, uh, share our, share our table at lunch. Um, but uh, so you mentioned difficult to access. I think operational intensity is, is, really a, is really a big factor. And that could be that um, you can't use algos, and so there's much more high-touch trading. That's kind of a big part of it. It could be that you need documentation and swap agreements in place. It could be that you need, you know, far, far, far more brokers um, to get to, to get a given trade done because every market has a specialist broker. There's a whole suite of issues, um, really, all the way down to broker relationships themselves. Because if you trade a relatively thin market with relatively few participants it kind of matters whether you're the first call or the third call from the broker. Um, so I think operational intensity is kind of right at the top of that. But I think kind of a, a close close second or close cousin of that would be the cost. Well, as I mentioned, we trade relatively high cost markets. Um, and if you don't have adequate conviction in higher sharps, it actually becomes suboptimal to trade more expensive markets. And I think a lot of people 
will um, will not unreasonably look at the cost profile, look at the bid offers of these markets and say, well, actually, I just don't believe there's enough alpha there to compensate for that cost um, and will shy away. Now, we're not going to be speaking about uh, performance specifically on on that podcast, obviously for compliance reasons, but in the in, in the biggest scheme of things. So the alternative markets CTA say over the last five to six years, I think, on a risk adjusted basis, they have outperformed the traditional market CTAs. Now this year, twenty twenty three, is uh, a relatively tricky year for trend. How has that shed, shaped out for you guys? I mean, did you did you did you you know again outperform everybody else because these markets just perform differently, or was it? kind of like uh, filtering through to uh, to your portfolio as well in, in terms of it's a tough trading this year. Yeah, I mean, w- without speaking too specifically about uh, around performance, um, I think it's fair to say that um, that, that, that we've suffered, uh, that we've suffered commensurately with a lot of our peers and that this year has just been a tough, has been a tough year for trend. And I think it's been a tough year for trend in um, it really in, in almost any asset class. I, as you rightly mentioned, there's a very wide dispersion and some of my compatriots um, have have had exceptional years, but I think on average and 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 and, and, and across the alt space, I think it's fair to say that uh, that that in that we've all kind of had a, that we've all taken our licks this year. Yeah, I mean, are there any markets that that stand out? Kind of like in the traditional spaces, like okay, you know, people made money this year being being in sugar, being in cocoa. You know, some trade orange juice. You know. Been short the bonds or still are short the bonds you don't have them but is there kind of like one market that or a couple of markets that when you go to christmas you remember it for 2023 it's like oh yeah that's been a, the stellar performer and that's been the dog of the portfolio well so so at a at a higher level and this I'll, I'll include markets that we don't trade um i think there've been the, the the underlying story has been whipsaw we've had a, a lot of very sharp very short trends with very sharp reversals. And, you know, if you, if you had to sketch out the, the worst case scenario, people often ask a, a very good question, which is what kind of environment is going to be tough for your strategy? And, um, and, and the answer is actually not sideways. Sideways is like a little bit expensive, but not really. You just kind of drift. Um, what's really expensive is sharp ups with sharp reversals and sharp downs with sharp reversals. And, and, and that's been true really across a number of different um, asset classes this year. I mean, I think the poster child for that would be fixed income. You know, sort of look at the events of March, look at November. Um, everybody who has a large fixed income book really struggled because of those those reversals. And those reversals were really down, uh, really rooted in a, in my view, in a in a sort of a tug of war between um, macro headwinds, Fed policy, et cetera. And I think that theme of kind of tug of war is true in a number of our markets as well. So, so China would be a good example. We were, were relatively large in onshore China markets. Um, China too has been involved in its own macro tug of war. You know, is China a 2% growth economy or is it a 6% growth economy? Um, is the government going to clean up the, uh, the, the, the real estate debt problem, you know, quickly, or is it going to, uh, is it going to, is it going to take a long time? And I think all of those kind of have led to um, kind of moments of euphoria and despair that um, that we've been, uh, if you will, um, kind of perversely tuned to from sort of a speed perspective. Now, as we're about to close this down, Scott, and you know, one of the things that I think you mentioned to me you'd like to to speak about is like your vision of where the space is going from here going forward. Like, what's your outlook on the alternative markets CTA space? Yeah. So, I, I mean, it, it's. It's one of those, um, it's one of those really kind of, um, 
one of those really interesting questions, and, and it raises this fundamental tension between staying super disciplined and sticking to your knitting and kind of a, a, and and retaining um, consistency and approach, um, tempered with the um, the uh, the self awareness, if you will, that markets evolve and market efficiency uh, increases over time, and and I think it would be naive to suggest that um, any investment style you know, short of maybe you've got a proprietary location, co-located, you know, location for your servers next to the floor of the exchange or something like that that's closer than everybody else. But in the broad sense, any strategy, I think, can only be expected to become uh, more more competitive and more populated and alpha to degrade over time. And I think we as quant traders have to kind of take that challenge head on. And I think our answer to that is um, that, as I mentioned development of new and interesting alternative commodity markets it goes hand in hand with kind of the, the with the ba- most basic nature of human progress and technological innovation and we don't think that will change um, but what it also means is we have to be willing to let go of stuff that we've done in the past you know you mentioned UK net gas so we do trade UK net gas we let go some time ago the front end of that curve because we believed it actually had become uh, had, had come to behave like a traditional market um, but we pushed our exposure out into other packages down the curve, seasonal packages, areas of the curve where we believe that producers and consumers were driving the price rather than speculators driving the price. And I think we, we as a space need to be sensitive um, to the idea that what, uh, what, what drives the, um, the, the higher sharp, if you believe this of an alternative market, um, will become less true of certain markets over time. And we're going to have to let some of that go. Okay, well, Scott, um, thank you so much for joining me today. I think that's been a really interesting conversation. We covered a lot of stuff. And uh, listeners, you can find Scott's contact and social media information in the show notes. And as ever, should you have any questions, be that to Scott or myself, please send an email to info at toptradersandblock.com where we'll pick it up and respond. So thanks again. Big time for listening, guys. I'll soon be back with another episode of Open Interest. So please stay tuned. And if we don't hear from each other prior to the holidays, well, Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and my best wishes for a great year 2024. Happy holidays to you too, Mortz. All the best. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.